Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty sure you have nothing against Santa Claus. He brings good tidings and there's a lot of things about him and his life and even what he represents that really is great. But Father, we, we also have to remember that um, there's one who came to this world uh, bringing gifts that were far superior to anything Santa brings. Jesus Christ. And Father, at this uh, holy time of year, we desire to put him first in our minds, in our hearts, in our conversation. And Lord, I thank you that um, right here now today on this Sunday morning, December 18th, 2011, uh, we have a church full of people that uh, are here to see Jesus. So, Lord, in these next moments, may you show us your son once again. May we see him, may we hear him, may we know him, may we experience his life together. We thank you, Father, for this time of year. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So for most of the people in the world... Uh, there's really no confusion about what's going to happen next Sunday. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He googled the web to find out who's naughty and nice. And you know what's next. Seven days until Santa Claus is coming to town. All across America, excited children will wake up Christmas morning, and this year it's on a Sunday morning, to see what Santa has brought them. The anticipation will be palpable. Little hearts beat into arrhythmia. (laughs) Visions of iPhones, 4G, of course, and iPads, Xboxes, and all sort of electronic bling-bling, dancing across children's mind screens. For most of these digital dervishes and pre-adolescent mouse monkeys, Santa's annual download of presents is one of the highlights of the year. Uh, Let's correct that. It is the highlight of the year. Let's be very honest. But as Christians, as parents, as grandparents, we have to wonder, has Santa become too much? We have to wonder if the bag of goodies, the jolly old man, Cress Myers dressed up like Santa Claus, is it too much? The song asks a very important question. Where's the line to see Jesus? Now, there's nothing wrong with lining up to see Santa Claus. I, I want you to hear me on that. I'm not one of those curmudgeons that thinks we should do away with Santa. I love Santa. He and I are like this. You know, we're buds. But where's the line to see Jesus? Some people think Santa's become too big in another way. I mean, literally, right? I read one newspaper article about health that told parents they should help children leave a salad for Santa instead of milk and cookies, along with a low-fat, high-protein diet plan. 
The old elf has gotten rather jolly of late. But there's an even bigger question for us in the Christian community. Have we allowed Santa to become too big in our hearts? Maybe we need to reclaim Christmas history. So, so this morning I want to do that. I want to go back 16 centuries to kind of feel and sense where this idea of Santa Claus came into being. And then after that, I want to go back 20 centuries, 2,000 years, and find out the real meaning of Christmas. So let's start with Santa. There's some fresh evidence from a seaside town in Turkey that Santa has succeeded in replacing St. Nicholas. Let me explain. The town is called Demre, D-E-M-R-E, and it's on that very spot back in the 4th century that a Christian bishop by the name of Nicholas, and let's take a look at Nicholas. There's the old boy, okay? Uh, So Nicholas uh, lived a life of faith, And performed an impressive number of good works. After his death, he became the patron saint, get this, of sailors, barrel makers, small children, and Russians. That's quite a combo, you know, it's kind of like a combo plate. Really, he was a patron saint of of children, but they didn't have enough patron saints, so they threw in Russians and barrel makers. So that's what you do. Um, But we remember him mostly as being the patron saint of children. So for hundreds of years, Russian tourists have visited the town of Demery to pay their respects to their patron saint. Until about 10 years ago, a Russian sculptor donated a a bronze statue of Nicholas to be displayed in the center of town. Kind of a a tip of the hat to the the origination of Santa and Saint Nicholas. So that was about 10 years ago, in 2001. But then, on February 3rd, 2005, the Demre City Council voted unanimously to erect a statue of Santa Claus in the town square. A plaster of Paris beauty of the jolly old man in a red suit. The elegant bronze statue of St. Nicholas? Deposed. Discarded. Demoted. Disgraced placed in the basement of the city hall, never to be seen again. The mayor of Demery said it this way. This is the Santa that everyone knows. This is the one he spoke to the Washington Post that everyone loves. He figured that the Santa statue was a better fit with the business interests of the town. The city's official seal features a picture of Santa with a jaunty red Camp. But what of St. Nicholas? Relegated to the basement along with broken folding chairs and, and, and other old relics. St. Nick replaced with Santa. Now let's don't be too hard on the citizens of Demery. Uh, we've followed the same pathway, right? Where's the line to see Jesus indeed? So, so who was this St. Nicholas? In the 4th century, Nicholas was a a passionate follower of Jesus. And the gifts that Nicholas brought to this world are the gifts that Jesus brought 400 years earlier. The gifts of glory 
and grace. Now, throughout this message this morning, I'm going to use those two words over and over again, uh, recognizing that uh, the gifts that God wants to give us at Christmas time, right, are the gifts of glory and grace. Now, I want to read a part of the Christmas story to you from Luke chapter two, verses eight through 20. And in this, as I read the story, I'd like you to listen for for the idea of uh, God's gift to mankind of glory and grace. And so we read from God's word these words. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Said one to another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, treasured in the King James Version, pondered all these things in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Glory and grace, two of the most Amazing gifts that God has ever given to his family, to his church, to humankind. The gifts of glory and grace. Think first about glory. In the eyes of the world, glory is often associated with kind of the high point of human achievement, right? Uh, enjoyment, uh, prosperity. Uh, we say when someone has done something great on uh, the sports field or the battlefield, uh, that it's glorious, that they have brought glory to their team or to their country or to their nation. But in the eyes of God, glory is associated with something completely different. Glory is associated, at least in this text, with a babe that is born in a barn. A child born to be our savior. The Messiah, our Lord. The text says the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. The word glory itself means um, light or radiance. Uh, maybe the best uh, description of the word glory from the Old Testament especially is like a high beam light shown right on something. This this light. And it's like at Bethlehem, the star of David was there and it just shone brightly on this event that we call the birth of Jesus. This spotlight. Now, those of you who are involved or love to follow sports and football, uh, but even those of you who don't have heard of the Tim Tebow mania. 
Now, Tim Tebow is a quarterback that went to the University of Florida, uh, was a very outstanding college quarterback, but he wasn't the classic passer that the NFL desires. Instead, he was kind of a hybrid of a runner, a passer. His mechanics weren't very good. He doesn't look very good throwing the ball. But somehow, over the last seven weeks, he's won six games for the Denver Broncos and has been thrust into the spotlight, the glory of the entire NFL. Everybody's talking about Tim Tebow. What makes it interesting is that Tim Tebow is a very outspoken evangelical Christian. He writes scripture verses uh, under his eyes, on his eye black, on a Sunday. And uh, he, you've heard of T-bowing. T-bowing is when he drops to a knee to thank God after he makes a touchdown or his team makes a touchdown. What's interesting about the glory that Tim Tebow is receiving is that he wants no part of it. Every time there's an interview, he always deflects any glory towards him, towards his teammates or to the great dismay of many people, to God. He says, well, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and this, that, and the other. And some people just cringe when they hear that. He's kind of like Kurt Warner on steroids. And, and, and so there, there's this, this idea that this glory, this light is shown on him, and he doesn't want it. He's constantly saying, no, move that light over here. Move that light to my teammates, or move that light more to my Lord and Savior Jesus. The glory that shone in the world 2,000 years ago shone brightly on the babe in the manger. But interestingly, as Jesus grew up, more and more he wanted that glory to be turned somewhere else. And that somewhere else was always to the Father. Always Jesus was trying to get away from the glory, get away from the spotlight. He had a job to do. That was to minister to people, to raise the dead, to heal the broken, and ultimately to bring salvation to all mankind. He had a job to do, and he wasn't interested in the spotlight or glory. We love glory, and we love people that experience it. But there was a child who never achieved material prosperity. A child who grew up to be condemned and forsaken. A child who grew up to be a servant and a savior. The one thing the Bible says that Jesus left behind when he came to earth as in the flesh, as a baby, and ultimately as a man, the one thing he left behind was his glory. The spotlight. That's not something he wanted. He wanted instead that spotlight to be shown on his Father in heaven. The glory of God was seen in the one who forfeited his right to be glorified, even Jesus Christ. The thing that Jesus wanted to spotlight in addition to his father was servanthood. There's a great passage, most of you know it, in John 13, where Jesus walks into the upper room. This is before the Last Supper. And uh, Peter, James, and John, you know, the, the, the three, you know, sidekicks, were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to have the, the, the light of glory shown on them? Who, who's going to be in the spotlight in eternity? And as they were talking about the spotlight and the glory that they might have received someday sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, Jesus walked into the room, picked up a towel and a basin, and began to wash their feet. While they're talking about the glory they are to receive. When Jesus is done, he asks a very poignant question. He says this, do you understand what I have just done? Now, the guys weren't stupid, right? 
They didn't really know why he'd done it, but they knew that he had just washed their feet. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know what you we know what you just did. Jesus said this. He says, OK, I want you to go and do the same thing. I want you to stop wanting the glory and the spotlight of the world on you and put it down on your feet. Just bend that spotlight a little bit from your face to your feet. I want you to see what glory looks like. Glory looks like washing the feet of another person. Shining the spotlight on somebody else. Yesterday, um, I was blown away uh, by two things. I was blown away by you, those who were at Matthew's Crossing and those who were making lunches here at church and bringing them over. I was blown away by your love and your ability to take the spotlight off of you and put it on your feet. Or in this case, on the feet of the homeless and the working poor in Chandler. And, and, and allow that to be the glory of God. The other thing I was amazed at was the um, people. There were, I don't know how many people, Scott. I think there was three or four hundred people in line that went all the way around the parking lot. Many of them young families. And what I was amazed at is their gratitude. Their gratitude for a cup of coffee. Some of those people were there at four in the morning waiting in line to have a, a, a dinner, a turkey or a ham dinner given to them uh, by Matthew's Crossing at nine o'clock in the morning. But the gratitude and the sense of thankfulness and gratefulness that these people that have nothing had. And these children went in and got a gift from uh, Santa Cruz, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and it was the, the gratefulness and the joy in their hearts. There's something amazing when you take the spotlight off of you and you drop it down to your feet or even more so to the feet of those who are broken or hurting or lonely or sinful or discarded by society or anything else. Luke 18:22 says it this way. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. The glory of God was seen in the servanthood of Jesus. Now, 400 years after Christ. St. Nicholas followed Christ by serving others. In fact, one of the quotes of St. Nicholas was this. The glory of God is seen in service to man. Isn't that beautiful? The glory of God is seen in service to man. Now, Nicholas was born of wealthy parents. And I'm sure as a boy growing up, he enjoyed prosperity and all the things that uh, wealth could give you. But he was changed when he was a young man, when he was about 18 years old, by Jesus' words in Luke 18:22 that I just read a minute ago. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. That verse propelled Nicholas into a life of giving away all of the glory and all of the stuff and all of the money that he possessed. He used his entire inheritance, and it was substantial, to assist the needy, the sick, the poor, and the suffering. He was made a bishop of the Roman church while a young man and became known for his love for children. I'm sure he also loved Russians and barrel makers, but he really loved children. And the generosity that he showed for those who were in need. Glory indeed. St. Nicholas, by choice, went from Donald Trump to Mother Teresa by choice. Now, Christmas time, I think for me, friends, is a time to do a glory check. Um, where are we finding our glory? 
Is it our achievements, our prosperity, the enjoyment of gifts that we get? I, it's always funny to me that those of us and most of us here are middle class people. Most of the stuff we get at Christmas are things that we really would never buy for ourselves, you know. You know, I've got enough socks, honey, by the way. And just, we just, you know, we just don't need anything. And if, if we really do want something, most of us just go out and we buy it. We need to do a glory check. How are we shining the light off of us and onto the feet of those who have much less than we do? The children, the sick, the marginalized, the devalued. You see, the, 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 the gloss of glory needs to turn from us to those we serve. Around the time that Nicholas was doing ministry to the poor, another bishop was called to the royal court by the Roman emperor. And the emperor uh, ordered the bishop to produce, quote, the treasures of the church. Now, the emperor felt threatened by the growing church and Christianity was gaining a foothold throughout the world. And remember, this is the fourth century. This is around the time that the Bible was made into a canon. And uh, this, this, this emperor wanted a piece of the wealth that was happening as, as Christianity was gaining momentum. So the bishop insisted that the church had, to, had no jewels. The bishop said, we have no money, we have no jewels, we have no valuables. But the emperor was absolutely adamant. He demanded, I want to see the treasures of the church to be brought into my treasury by tomorrow morning. The next day, the bishop appeared empty-handed. The emperor thundered. I told you to bring the treasures of the church. The bishop invited the emperor to look out at the palace steps. And gathered there was a great mass of people, many beggars, outcasts, slaves, cripples. These, said the bishop of the emperor, are the treasures of the church. Now, I wrote this sermon last Wednesday. So when I went to Matthew's Crossing yesterday... I saw these people standing in line in a whole different way. I saw them as the treasures of the church. Now, some of them love Jesus. You could tell, as Scott and I and Pastor Barb and others were going through the crowd, some people wanted us to pray for them, and and just some people just wanted to talk. And many of them were believers, but many, of course, weren't as well. But all of them need the spotlight of grace and glory to be shown on them. Not that they want to be known, but to see their feet that need washing, their clothes that need to be repaired, their hunger that needs to be satisfied. These are the treasures of the church. Our glory is not found in gold or jewels, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and everyone, everyone who has been created by God to know him and love him. We need to um, change the way we do glory. We need to have a glory check in each and every one of us. Because both St. Nicholas and Jesus point to the glory of God, which is serving and ministering in Jesus' name to people throughout the world. But there's something else, another gift that God has given us through his son Jesus, and that is the gift of grace. Now in the text, it talks about, the angel said, on whom his favor rests. On whom his favor rests. That phrase favor is the same word as grace, charis. And that word means God's blessing, his love, his abundance poured out on an individual. 
God's grace. You've heard the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is not something you deserve. Grace is not something you can earn. Grace is the lavish love of God poured out on you, period, because he loves you. St. Nicholas also had a pattern of gift giving. There's uh, part of the legend of St. Nicholas was that he had all of this money that he was given as an inheritance. And three different times he had a bag of gold left from his inheritance. And three different times he would give that bag of gold to a girl who had no dowry. And a girl in the fourth century that had no dowry in the Roman Empire, guess what? She became a prostitute. She became a street person. They didn't have street light in those days. They didn't have places where you could try and help girls get out of trafficking. If you had no dowry, you were on the street, and that's just too bad. Three different times, St. Nicholas took a bag of gold and he gave it to a young girl and said, here is your dowry, and gave that girl a chance to live a full and generous life. He was known for his goodness, his compassion, his generosity, especially with children. Sacrificial. Loving, compassionate life was seen by all. Something that not even Jesus, or excuse me, something that not even Santa can match. And Jesus, the gifts that he gives to you and to me, do you know God's grace this morning? I mean, his grace, his unmerited favor. In spite of your brokenness, in spite of your sin, in spite of your ugliness, Do you know that God's grace wants to be lavished upon you, poured out upon you? You know the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son did everything wrong. He left his family. He spent all of his money. He did everything wrong. He lived in sin. But when he came back, the Bible says that the father saw him from afar, far away and went out, ran out to meet him and put a robe on him, a ring on his finger and said, you are my son. He didn't deserve any of that. And the next time you think you deserve anything, you need to see yourself as the prodigal son, as the prodigal daughter. You have nothing to give except your brokenness. As the old hymn says, nothing to give but brokenness and strife. God wants to grace you, to embrace you, to give you his forgiveness, his joy, and especially to give you his unconditional love, which is his grace. You need only reach out and accept it. One of the most charming stories that I've ever heard, was written by the father um, uh, whose wife went Christmas shopping one Saturday afternoon, and he was left to babysit the four children. Now, dads, when mom's out of the house and dad's babysitting, usually what it looks like is laying on the couch watching football and dozing. But in this case, four small children came and interrupted his nap and said, Daddy, Daddy, we have a play to put on. We want you to see it. In fact, do you want to see it? Now, Daddy knew that he, if he answered incorrectly, he would get back to mom. So he said, yes, I would love to see it. So they move into the living room, which and he became the one man audience. He quickly recognized that it was a Christmas play. At the foot of the piano stood stool was a, a flashlight. It turns out that the flashlight was wrapped in swaddling clothes and uh, living in a shoebox. Uh, not a bad caricature, by the way, of Jesus, the light of the world. And uh, then uh, Rex, uh, age six, uh, came in wearing dad's bathrobe and carrying a mop handle. Uh, he was followed by Nancy, age 10, who announced, I'm Mary and this is Joseph. 
Then Trudy, age four, entered with pillowcases over her arms and said, I am the angels. And she was flopping around like that. Finally came Anne, age eight, and she was kind of the leader of the pack. And um, she was riding a camel, at least it appeared to be a camel in her mother's high heels. And she was bedecked in all kinds of jewelry that she got from her mother's uh, dresser. And, uh, and, and, and then she came in and said, I am all three wise men. You could tell she was in charge. You always have a kid like that. I am all three wise men and I bring precious gifts of gold, circumstance and mud. And, um, and the play was over. But it wasn't over for the dad. Because he realized in that childlike way of talking and seeing the pageant that the kids had gotten it right. That the gifts that you and I bring to God aren't gold and frankincense and myrrh. No, they're much more like our circumstances and our mud. Much more like that. Those gifts we bring seem very unimportant, in fact, very bad. Some of the kind of gifts you wouldn't want anyone to really open. But when we offer those gifts of our brokenness, of our sin, of our circumstances that don't always work outright, and certainly our mud, that is when we experience, maybe for the first time, the unmerited grace of God. The grace that is lavished upon us because simply we are His children. Santa Claus gives gifts to those who are good. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, gives gifts to those who are naughty, bad, weak, broken, and alone. The gift of life, the gift of glory, the gift of grace. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, at Christmas time, it's really easy to get confused about all of this Santa stuff and Jesus stuff. And as Christian parents, we're always struggling to make sure our kids know how to, how to answer correctly. What is the real meaning of Christmas? And they usually do. But quite honestly, most of them are thinking about Santa. But Lord, when we really look at the tradition of Santa Claus and the beginning of Santa Claus, we see a man, St. Nicholas, who was very much like Jesus who, who very much turned the glory away from himself onto the lives of those who had much less, who very much recognized that he could not live without the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And Lord, for that testimony and for that act of glory and grace that Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, we are deeply grateful. Father, this morning, there may be some here who would say, Pastor Dwayne, I, um, you know, I, I do, too, get kind of confused about Christmas. But one thing that I've heard clearly today is this, that God expects us to bring gifts to him. And they don't always look like gifts that are shiny and clean and beautiful. But often our gifts are simply our circumstances, which aren't very good. And our mud, our lives, our sin that is broken. And Lord, I just would give an opportunity this morning for those in our congregation who would say, I, more than anything, I want Jesus to know that he is my Savior, that he is my Lord, that I can't live without his grace, 
I can't live without his forgiveness. I, I bring to you, Lord Jesus, my circumstances, my mud, my brokenness, my broken heart. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. If there are those of you here this morning who have never by faith asked Jesus to come into your life and lavish you with that grace, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. To pray in the quietness of your own heart a prayer that I will lead you in. And remember this, the prayer doesn't do anything. It just simply opens your heart up to a Savior who loves you. The words don't matter as much as your heart saying, Lord Jesus, come into my life and make me a new person. So if that's your desire, I would invite you to repeat after me in quietness uh, this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I offer you my gifts of circumstances and mud. I offer you the gift that doesn't seem very much of my life that is broken that so often I desire to have the glory of the world shown upon me, but instead, Lord, I just recognize that I need you desperately to forgive me of my sins and to fill me with life everlasting. And so by faith, with a small amount of faith that I have, I invite Jesus Christ to come into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. And I trust him to do that in his precious name. Still with every head bowed and eye closed, if that was your prayer this morning, I would love to know that so that I can pray for you. And no one else is looking around, but if you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand up? And as you raise your hand up, just look at me so that I can make eye contact with you. Anyone like that? Yes, God bless you. Right over here. Anyone else? God bless you, hon. Yes. Anyone else? Lord, we are so grateful when someone says yes to the Savior. We're so grateful when someone passes from death to life, from darkness to light. And we thank you for these two who raised their hands this morning. And Lord, I pray now that as we go from this place, that we would go with a sense of joy and a sense of knowing that the glory of God, the glory of God is not those of us who are living these great lives, but the glory of God is all those who need Jesus and love him and serve him faithfully. And Father, thank you for your grace that is so rich. Bless us, Father, and we pray that you would help us to live faithfully these weeks and these days, or these days before Christmas. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.